Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. saying you threatened that stewardess. I was not threatening her. I was just trying to get my bag into the overhead storage thing. You were acting like a maniac I... and you threatened her with a bomb. No, I said I didn't have a bomb. You said bomb. I said I, it's not like I have a bomb. You said bomb on an airplane. What's wrong with saying bomb on an airplane? You can't say bomb on an airplane. Bomb, bomb, bomb. Bomb, 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 bomb. Bomb, 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 bomb. You gonna arrest me? You assaulted an airline employee. What if I was in, in the military and I was a bombardier? Bomb, 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 That's Ben Stiller's character in a scene from the movie Meet the Parents, if you remember it. It brings up a question for us about the First Amendment's protection for the freedom of speech. The Constitution doesn't allow you to say anything you want at any time and in any place. The classic case in constitutional law is not about saying bomb on a plane, but it's about yelling fire in a crowded theater. Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes used that example in the 1919 case of Schenck v. United States. In his majority opinion, he wrote, the most stringent protection of free speech would not protect a man in falsely shouting fire in a theater and causing a panic. But before we get to that, let's back up a bit. We've spent the last several weeks laboring over the development of three doctrines that are essential to understanding the Supreme Court's constitutional rights jurisprudence. The first is the doctrine of incorporation, the idea that the rights enumerated in the Bill of Rights are applicable to the national government and state governments alike. And they're applicable to the state governments because we now incorporate the Bill of Rights into how we read the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. The second is the doctrine of substantive due process, something related but distinct from the doctrine of incorporation. According to the doctrine of substantive due process, some government deprivations of fundamental liberties are so unreasonable or arbitrary that they don't satisfy the due process of law. Those fundamental liberties are ones that are deeply rooted in our history and traditions, but not necessarily ones enumerated in the Bill of Rights. The third is the state action doctrine, the idea that the Constitution protects individual rights by putting restrictions on the government, but not by putting restrictions on private actors. Common and statutory law does that. Private individuals can be charged with a crime or sued in civil court, but those cases don't involve constitutional violations. These doctrines developed over time and really came into their own only in the mid to late 20th century. But for the purposes of our discussions going forward, let's just assume that the rights in the Bill of Rights apply equally to the national government and to the state governments, even if they don't apply to private individuals or private companies. So even though the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law, we're going to assume that that means and your state legislature also shall make no law. Government agencies and subdivisions, both state and national, shall not pursue any policy that infringes on your constitutional rights. And all of that is really just ground clearing for the interpretive work that remains to be done. Even if we assume that some right restricts the government, we still have to ask about the best interpretation of that right and about any implied exceptions or limits. So back to the First Amendment. The text of that amendment says this, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. 
We'll spend the next several episodes talking about the freedom of speech before moving to the freedom of religion under the First Amendment. Some preliminary questions about speech. What is the freedom of speech? What does it mean for the freedom of speech to be abridged? Or for the freedom of the press to be abridged? What's the purpose of the amendment, and what are its limits? On limits, just because you say something or write something doesn't mean you're immune from criminal prosecution. It's against the law to defraud someone else, to slander them, to make threats of bodily harm, to engage in conspiracy to commit a crime, to contract with someone for an illegal activity, or to incite violence. Speaking and writing in those contexts can be criminal acts, and the First Amendment doesn't shield you from criminal prosecution. And the obvious reason is because criminal activities aren't part of the freedom of speech. It's not part of what's protected there. The point was never that you can say anything, anytime, to anyone. But what was the point? Like everything else, that's a question we've disagreed with each other about since the beginning of the Republic. Consider the Sedition Act of 1798. Many of the same men who proposed and ratified the First Amendment to the Constitution also wrote and passed the Sedition Act. And despite the First Amendment saying Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech, this law, passed by Congress, said that if any person shall write, print, utter, or publish, or shall cause or procure to be written, printed, uttered, or published, or shall knowingly and willingly assist or aid in writing, printing, uttering, or publishing any false, scandalous, and malicious writing or writings against the government of the United States, or either House of the Congress of the United States, or the President of the United States, with intent to defame the said government or either house of the said Congress or the said president, or to bring them or either of them into contempt or disrepute, or to exercise against them or either of them the hatred of the good people of the United States, and on and on and on, then that person shall be punished a fine not exceeding $2,000, equivalent to about $42,000 today, and by imprisonment not exceeding two years. In other words, for the crime of criticizing the government, you could be liable for a serious fine, and you might go to prison for up to two years. This bill was controversial, as you might guess. Madison and Jefferson thought it was unconstitutional. They urged states to nullify the federal law, to interpose the state governments between the federal government and their own citizens. And if you're interested in reading more about that controversy, Google the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions. There are a lot of constitutional issues there to consider, and those debates have reverberated throughout American history. But for our purposes, this early Sedition Act sets the stage for the Espionage Act of 1917. Passed during World War I, the Act says that whoever, when the United States is at war, shall willfully utter, print, write, or publish any disloyal, profane, scurrilous, or abusive language about the form of government of the United States, or the Constitution of the United States, or the military or naval forces of the United States, or the flag, or the uniform, or whoever shall by word or act oppose the cause of the United States, shall be punished by a fine of not more than $10,000, or imprisonment for not more than 20 years, or both. That fine's worth about $346,000 today. It's a serious deprivation of property and liberty for the crime of criticizing the government, the Constitution, the military, the flag, or even the military uniform. Under this act, the government prosecuted over 2,000 people, many of them communists or socialists critical of the United States and its war effort. And one of those was Charles Schenck, the general secretary of the Socialist Party in the United States. He was convicted under the Sedition Act for distributing a pamphlet that was critical of the military draft. And ironically, at the very top of the pamphlet, in bold-faced type, the title said, 
long live the Constitution of the United States. And then the subheading said, wake up, America, your liberties are in danger. Schenck's argument in the pamphlet was a constitutional argument. He said that the 13th Amendment to the Constitution prohibits involuntary servitude and that the 9th Amendment protects other unenumerated rights. Citizens should, he urged, assert their right not to be drafted into the military. No power was delegated to send our citizens away to foreign shores to shoot up the people of other lands, he wrote. And no specious or plausible pleas about a war for democracy can becloud the issue, he insisted. Democracy must come through liberal education, and upholders of military ideas are unfit teachers, he said. For distributing 15,000 copies of this pamphlet, Schenck was sentenced to six months in federal prison. He appealed his conviction on the grounds that the law violated the First Amendment to the Constitution. Congress had passed a law abridging his freedom of speech, he alleged. And that's when Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote that there was no right to falsely shout fire in a crowded theater. In Schenck v. United States in 1919, a unanimous Supreme Court signed on to Holmes's opinion. We admit, Holmes wrote, that in many places and in ordinary times the defendants in saying all that was said in the circular would have been within their constitutional rights. But the character of every act depends upon the circumstances in which it is done. The most stringent protection of free speech would not protect a man in falsely shouting fire in a theater and causing a panic. The question... Holmes went on, in every case is whether the words used are used in such circumstances and are of such a nature as to create a clear and present danger that they'll bring about the substantive evils that Congress has a right to prevent. It is a question of proximity and degree. When a nation is at war, many things that might be said in time of peace are such a hindrance to its effort that their utterance will not be endured so long as men fight, and no court could regard them as protected by any constitutional right, Holmes concluded. So with Shank, we're left with this. Congress passed a law making it a crime to criticize the government or the war effort. Shank then wrote a pamphlet that made a constitutional argument against the military draft and urged people to assert their constitutional right not to fight. The government thought this would harm the United States' ability to wage war successfully in World War I, and the consequences of failure in the war would be so dire that everything was then on the table. In ordinary times, this would have been constitutionally protected speech, Holmes said, but these weren't ordinary times. So long as men fight, Holmes wrote, no court could regard them as protected by any constitutional rights. The question to be asked, according to Holmes, is whether the words are used in circumstances that will create a clear and present danger to bring about some evil that Congress has the power to legislate against. Now keep these arguments and the clear and present danger test in mind as we turn later this week to a few cases from the latter half of the 20th century that modify and extend the clear and present danger test as the Supreme Court continues to wrestle with the challenge of speech during times of war, crisis, or imminent danger. Thank you.